Welcome to Behavioral Grooves, the podcast that explores human behavior through a behavioral science lens. I'm Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. We like to explore why we do what we do with researchers, authors, and practitioners in a conversational setting in order to bring those insights to you. Today's episode is a cool conversation we had with the successful investor, business owner, researcher, and author, Whitney Johnson. We caught up with Whitney after we read her amazing book, Smart Growth, How to Grow Your People to Grow Your Company. Whitney's observations on the way leaders make decisions about their business and the people who make the business what it is. Yeah, Whitney is a remarkable person. She's bright, incredibly driven, and able to navigate the barbs of Wall Street. And at the same time, she's introspective and generous, a combination that Kurt and I just found infectious. We think that you'll like what she has to say about her S-curve model that helps leaders figure out how to navigate the challenging dictates of corporate life in part because it's highly personalized. It's not just some crazy management theory that hovers above the ground and never lands. I tell you, Whitney will help you land this model. That she will, Tim. And she's also been very generous to share a few copies of her book with readers. She signed them and is allowing Tim and me to give these three copies away for free. All you have to do is write a Twitter post about why you would like to read Whitney's book, Smart Growth, and put that out on social media and a copy and then copy the Behavioral Grooves moniker, hashtag Behavioral Groove, with, that's without the E tip. So we have it. No E, no S. Yeah, just, yeah it, is, it is just B-E-H-A-V-I-O-R-A-L-G-R-O-O-V. And you stop there. You don't add the E or the <laughs> S. It's just you stop. So, yeah. Hashtag in front of that, though, by the way. Of course. Of course. It is really that easy. Just write a post on Twitter about why you think you'd like to read Smart Growth and copy the Behavior Grooves account. That's all you have to do. And we'll pick the top three entries and reach out to you uh, to get your address and so we can get it shift off to you right away. Free books. Who would have guessed we're giving free books to our listeners? Ah, It's cool to be a Groover. It is get cool. free books. Yeah, well, there you go. Whitney is a generous and wonderful person. And with that, we hope you sit back with a double decaf iced latte of your current favorite S-curve and enjoy our conversation with Whitney Johnson. Whitney Johnson, welcome to Behavioral Grooves. Thank you for having me, Tim. It is great for you to be here. And we always get started with a speed round. So we want to find out, workout in the morning or workout in the afternoon? Morning. Oh, that was quick. I like this. All right. Speed round. I like this. Coffee or tea? Neither. Neither. What? So, all right. So it's a speed round, but what's the drink of choice if you don't, if you don't drink coffee or tea? Juice? Is it water? Water. Mm-hmm. We've had a few. We've had a few people yeah. who have yeah. like, a, which Bravo. I just, you know, great. Yeah. Oh, but at night, hot chocolate. So Ooh. I would do hot chocolate. That's kind of exotic. You, you will be a favorite with my children. There you go. A favorite hot chocolate recipe? Like, do you have just a homemade? We'll look up hot chocolate recipes on Food Network channel and make what looks decadent with lots of cream. That is the best kind. Bravo. <laughs> That's way to go. Okay. Dinner with your favorite musician or favorite athlete? Oh, that's a hard one. Musician, if they'll play or sing afterwards. Oh, oh I like that caveat. That's an interesting edge. Anybody come to mind? Diana Krall, 
Stevie Wonder. Ooh. Yes. He would be my number one. <laughs> yes. Oh, man. My what number one. Hands down. Stevie. Wow. Steve mm. Lind Wonder. That, he mm. would be fantastic. Mm. Okay, Whitney. Can you have more than one S-curve in your life? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're, on, we're on multiple S-curves at any given time. All right. So in your book, Smart Growth, you talk a lot about S-curves, which just for our listeners, the, the idea was originally uh, developed or identified by Iowan, which is my home state, and social scientist E.M. Rogers. So tell us, or could you describe for our listeners what an S-curve is and why it's important? Yes. All right. So as Kurt, you just said, it was popularized by Everett Rogers, a soci yeah. sociologist, and he was looking at corn because Iowans have corn. And there was a new corn. It was drought resistant. It had a 20% higher yield. It was easier to harvest. And it took five years for the first 10% of the farmers to adopt it. He's like, this is a useful thing. Why aren't people adopting it? But then once 10% adopted it over the next three years, they went from penetration of 10% to 40%. And so he started to study this phenomenon. He said, ideas are adopted in the shape of an S, hence the diffusion curve, or what he calls the diffusion curve. Well, I discovered the S-curve when I was investing with Clayton Christensen at the Harvard Business School, and we were using the S-curve to help us figure out how quickly innovations would be adopted. And with the idea is if you know that it's going to be initially seemingly slow until you reach that tipping point of 10 to 15% is how do we anticipate that it's going to hit that 10 to 15% and buy ahead of that when everybody's like, there's nothing here, there's nothing here, there's nothing here. And so we use the diffusion curve for investing. But for me, as we were doing that investing, I had this insight, this aha, that we could use it to help us understand how people learn and how we grow. That whenever we start something new, we're at the base of the S and initially growth feels very slow until a tipping point is reached and you go into this place of fast, growth is fast and it feels fast and then you eventually get to the top of that curve where growth is in fact slow. So you've got this slow and then fast and then slow is how you grow. And I thought once you understand this, once you understand what it looks like, you're going to increase your capacity to grow because you can orient yourself and you know where you are. So you know what's next. So that's the S-curve. What inspired you? You know, you have this aha moment. Mm. What do you think was the catalyst for it? Well, I think the catalyst started probably about 10 years prior to that. I was, I used to be an analyst working on Wall Street and I covered emerging markets. I was a stock picker and I would try to decide if a stock had momentum and put a buy or a sell on that stock. And Around 2003 or so, we were having this big training meeting internally, and this was the apex of American Idol. It was also a brand called You had just come out from Tom Peters, and we were doing this training session. And I thought, oh, this would be really cool to figure out what brand each of the analysts are. Are you a forensic analyst? Are you um, an industry expert? And do you have momentum like on American Idol? Are you going to win? Are you coming back from behind, coming from behind, et cetera? And I spent an inordinate amount of time thinking about the brand of my colleagues. And I had this little sense of, I'm actually more interested in the momentum of people than I am of stocks. So this is 2002, 2003. Then next data point, I am still working as an equity analyst. I read The Innovator's Dilemma by Clayton Christensen. I'm working in the emerging markets. I'm recognizing that every single quarter, wireless 
is beating my estimates every single quarter. Why are they beating my estimates? I'm being aggressive. I read the innovator's dilemma. Oh, that's what's happening. Wireless is disrupting wireline. It doesn't matter that the phones have terrible quality because a bad phone's better than no phone. I'm reading innovator's dilemma. I have then this experience of, I go to my boss, hey, I'm ready to do something new. My boss says, we like you right where you are. I now have the innovator's dilemma in my head. Oh, maybe people can disrupt themselves. Data point number two. Now you're seeing a pattern, right? Yeah. Stocks, people, momentum of people, disruption, personal disruption. So now we're using the S-curve to understand how quickly the innovation will be adopted. It's not too much of a leap for me at this point to say, I think this can apply to people. And so I didn't know this about myself, but I now know is that part of the way I make sense of a management theory, how I operationalize it and help other people operationalize it is how do I apply it to the individual? Because when you understand how it applies to you, you have this visceral sense of it, and then you can start to affect it inside of your organization. So that's where the aha came. That's a long story, but I kind of needed to give you that background so you could know how I got there. Yeah, that was a great story, actually. There's nothing long about that. I love the explanation. And of course, you... you, Well, and Tim, you love Clayton Christensen, so... I am a huge Mm. fan. I mean, the the innovator's dilemma, like, turned my world upside down in 1997. When I first read it, it was like, wow, like, this just... And of course, I was working for a Fortune 500 company at the time. I was like, look out. (laughs) Oh, danger, Will Robinson. Wait, I want to hear. So how did it turn your world upside down? What, What product were you in? I was in checking. I was in a business that printed checks. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like oh, yeah. Disruption, <laughs> atomic level disruption, right? Yeah. Because payment cards were not in the market yet, mm. but they were actually predicted. Like mm. the analysts actually said, this technology could emerge. And the big check company that I was with, like, ah, don't worry about it. We're just going to milk this cow until it runs dry. I got to get out of here. <laughs> and, and, and it ran dry. So how long, once you, once you read that book, do you remember how long it took you before you, you disrupted yourself? Because before you got disrupted, did it take a year, two years, three years? Let's see. So I read that sometime in 1997. I don't remember yep. when. Mm-hmm. I left that company in 98. So All right. So pretty fast. Pretty quickly. I was mm-hmm. like, I need to move into something different. Yeah. So it had a profound effect for me. So what was it like working with Clayton uh, Christensen? Yeah. So first of all, he's really tall. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Six foot eight. Yeah. So what I would say is really tall, brilliant, and gentle. Like people called him the gentle giant. And it was true. Deeply, deeply curious. And I think the thing for me that was, apart from his theories, and he was also a brilliant storyteller. I mean, I could mm. I could go on and on. I mean, his ability to tell stories was just so captivating. And like I like in him, person, like yes. like like just. I mean, his, his yeah. the books are great, but like no, even in person. in person, he was that engaging. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You could just sit there, and I heard him speak a lot, and I'd hear him tell the same jokes, and I'd still think it was funny. I mean, I was total, total fangirl. But here's here's the most important thing about Clayton, is you know when he wrote "How Will You Measure Your Life," like that was his life. I mean, mm. I saw him in a variety of circumstances because I saw him in in spiritual 
church settings and I saw him in work settings. And apart from the theory itself, the thing that is really continuing to stay with me is that he did not separate the secular from the spiritual. He brought mm. his religious sensibility into the workplace and he brought his workplace sensibility, his intellectual prowess into his spiritual setting. And that's what made him so powerful. And so for me to be able to watch that and have that in my brain and in my mental model, that's going to be probably the second, no, actually I would say perhaps even more important is watching him, how he did that of living that whole life. Wow. That the integration of mm -hmm. the various aspects of his life kind of coming together. I think yep. that's fantastic when we think yeah. about that. Because so many times we tend to compartmentalize. We right. put, oh, nope, that's this world over here and that's this world over on, on this other side. And the fact of the matter is, is that's not how we are as humans. As humans, no. we are definitely this complex, interwoven facet. And to try to put those different pieces into different areas and say, nope, the two shall never mix is probably a false uh, hope of people or even a, a wrong kind of idea about how to do it. Yeah. And Kurt, I would say that's been one of the gifts of the pandemic, because mm -hmm. I think that we, our work and our home lives were merged because they were the same thing. And so we've, we had a couple of years where a lot of us that were compartmentalizing were forced from a physical sense to not compartmentalize. And yeah. I think that's been a really positive thing for us to think, oh, well, so how do all these things fit together and, and to puzzle through that? Well, isn't this kind of indicative of what life was like before the Industrial Revolution? Like mm. the, you know, I, we worked out of our homes. So home and home and work life was just all the same thing. The accountant, the seamstress, the, you know, the even the, the forge was out back for, you know, for yeah. the iron worker. It was like, I just, just worked at home. So it's kind of weird how we got disconnected from that. Yeah, I agree. I hadn't thought of that before. I really like that. And again, I think it's really positive of how we're putting these different parts of our life together. The thing I think it's so interesting because you're talking about behavioral. I am fascinated by how many times I can be coaching an executive and I know that they have this really deep faith tradition, like really deep faith tradition. And they'll be trying to wrestle and grapple with this big decision. And I'll say something like, well, have you prayed about it? And they're like, it hadn't occurred to me to do that, mm -hmm. which is fascinating. Yeah. Again, I think the last couple of years have helped accelerate us moving back to, I, Tim, I love that idea of you're a farmer and you farm at home and you just put all yeah. these pieces together. I think with also with Zoom and all of these different pieces, we're getting glimpses into people's lives that we didn't mm -hmm. have before. Mm -hmm. We get to see where they live. They the kids running in the background or yes. the, 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 the pets. And so all of a sudden you are more than just this coworker who lives in the cubicle next to me. You are actually a human being who has a life that is well beyond, you know, the accounting, you know, documents that you need to get for mm -hmm. me. And thus I think it, it makes it more of a human centric kind of yeah. work hope. That's the hope, right? I mean, and granted there are some really negative things about, you know, being right, separated course. in part and of different course. all that. So Wow, we went off on a tangent. Yes. <laughs> I want to get back. I want to get back to S curves. Okay. <laughs> we jumped off the S curve. Now we're going to get back on the S curve. We were, we, yeah. we're going. We went fast down another uh, another another lane there. Early on in the book, you say that nobody climbs their S curve alone, mm. and we, you know, in from a behavioral science perspective, we're always interested in context and the social side about you know social proof and things like this. 
How much do you think luck and context and peers and all those kinds of things impact our S curves? Oh, maybe that's a lot to unpack. Maybe <laughs> it's a lot to unpack. Um, let me give you a metaphor that I think I think illustrates two thoughts that are coming to mind. Number one is that if you think about an S curve as a mountain, you yourself need to climb that mountain. You have to do it. It is up to you. So agency, a thousand percent. There are also then tools that you can put in your backpack to do that. So you're making these decisions, these micro disruptions that allow you to move along that mountain. And I talk a lot about that in my book, Disrupt Yourself. You play to your strengths and you embrace your constraints and you leverage failure. But then there's something called the weather patterns. And the weather patterns are, is it sunny? Is it snowing? Do you have all the tools and resources you need to do the job? Do you have a person who is helping you lead you up the mountain? Or do you have someone who's trying to push you off the cliff at every turn? So that ecosystem itself, those weather patterns are absolutely vital and, and do make a difference as to how successfully you can move along that curve. And one of the stories that I tell, and the quote that you just gave was from a woman named Astra Tumines, and it's such a great story to really illustrate this point that you just raised, which is, here's a woman who grew up in the Philippines, in the slums of the Philippines. She's the fifth of six children. Her She was raised by her older sister. And today, she is the president of a 40,000-person university here in the United States. A lot of us could look at her and go, Astrid Tuminius is self-made. And to an extent, she is. But then she says, anybody who believes that they're self-made is a delusion. Why? Because <laughs> she had an older sister who cooked for her and made sure she was bathed and taken care of. And then she had some nuns that discovered she and her sisters and got them into a school for girls that were poor. And then she made it to the United... Well, then she had some people who would vouch for her so she could get a visa to come to the United States. And then she had a professor who was willing to take her under her wing. So all along the way, she is making every single step up that mountain. Mm. But there were people who were making it possible for her to go up that mountain. So it's it's a both and. Mm. We act, but people, well, there's a great saying, and I don't know who said it, but you have to do it by yourself, but you cannot do it alone. That's a great line. Isn't that a good one? No, oh, I don't think I've ever heard that before. Yeah, and yeah. I don't know who to attribute it to, but it's not me. I wish it were. We'll try to figure it out, and yeah. if we can, we'll put it in the show notes. So. Mm -hmm. Okay, so Whitney, you also talk about the six phases of kind of going through the S-curve. Mm -hmm. Can you, again, just for our listeners, briefly kind of describe each of those? And, and then you also bring up this element of it feels slow or it feels mm -hmm. fast and kind mm -hmm. of help us understand all of that as you're moving through them. Yeah. So why don't I talk about the neuroscience of it first, and then I can go through each of those phases. Okay, perfect. So, you know what podcast you're on, don't you? Here yes, you go. I do. This is what our listeners are, are craving. Here I we go. am in the groove. Oh, yes. <laughs> All right. So here's what's going on in your brain. By the way, actually, I think you'll appreciate this because of the, the topic is that when I had this idea around this S curve, someone said to me, You kind of made this vast intuitive leap. And I think there is absolutely some element of that. The purpose. Part of the purpose of this book was to do the work of saying, I know I made this intuitive leap, but I am confident that my hunch is correct. Mm. And so I wanted to look at 
I spent a lot of time, okay, I've got to make sure that the neuroscience backs me up. I've got to make sure that the biology backs me up. I've got to make sure that the psychology backs me up. I've got all this qualitative anecdotal, but can I really make this claim? And it's still early days, but I'm confident that I can make the claim. So neuroscience, here's what's going on. Whenever you start something new, like you start a podcast or you want to become a professor, you are at the launch point of the curve and your brain is making these predictions because our brain run predictive models. And at the launch point, many of those predictions are inaccurate because you're just starting. <laughs> it's and the launch point. <laughs> because, because they're inaccurate, your dopamine drops. And the dopamine is this chemical messenger of delight, which means you're not, you're de-delighted. That's not a word, but I'm making it up. The second thing that happens is that your brain is also making memories because you're basically on a new S-curve island and you're exploring and you're like, I've never seen any of this stuff before. So it's like, okay, let me register this and then this and then this. And so cognitively, it is very, very taxing. And so if you feel tired when you're doing something new, of course, you're feeling tired because you're doing something new. The third thing that's happening, there's more than this, but there's also this major identity shift of like, who am I if I'm not who I was? I mean, I knew I was really good at that thing, but like, I don't know who I am now. And that is really difficult to feel the sense of uncertainty about who we are. So that's the launch point. And what's happening there is that growth is actually happening. It's happening very fast, but it's not apparent. It's like you can't put all the pieces together yet. And so the experience that you're having is that it is slow. So that's the launch point. The two phases there are explorer and collector. So explorer is that place where you just showed up here. You're doing the exploring, putting all these pieces. Do I actually want to stay here? Do I want to get get out of Dodge, get off this island as fast as I can? Do I want to stay here longer? You can ask yourself some questions. Is this aligned with my identity? Is this hard but not too hard? If you say, yes, I want to stay here a little bit longer, you go to the collector phase and you're collecting data of, can I get the resources? Let's say you're on an island. Can I get the resources that I need in order to be effective? And this goes back to your ecosystem question. I might decide that I want to be a UFC fighter. It's interesting. It's in line with who I want to be. I know it's a huge stretch, but let's just go with me for a second. But I realize now, I don't know anybody who knows anything about UFC fighting. It's in a part of the country that I don't want to move. So I can't actually get the resources that I need to be able to move along this curve. So the ecosystem is not hospitable to my doing this. So I made that point decide, probably not the right S curve for me, at least not right now. I'll do UFC fighting when I'm in my 80s. So you say, (laughs) I'm going to go do this other thing. I don't know what it is about you two. You're making me giggle. It's very fun. So, so <laughs> we're just having a good time. I'm just time. picturing an 80 year old Whitney right? doing UFC it's fighting. And it just brings I, a smile to my face. I'm sorry. It's, I, it's wonderful. I, I can totally picture it too. So you're now saying, you're, you're making this decision of, yes, I'm going to commit. I can see myself doing this or no, I'm not going to commit. So this is the launch point experience. Now, slow. The sweet spot is that steep, sleek back of the curve. What's going on here? Your brain is continuing to make predictions. And those predictions are increasingly accurate. So you're feeling competent. You are feeling competent. 
or excuse me, confident. You are feeling this sense of this is hard, but it's not too hard. It's easy, but it's not too easy. Your identity is starting to shift because you're it's no longer just this thing you do. It's starting to become who you are. At least you can see that possibility. You are not all new information, so it's not as cognitively taxing. And importantly, because your predictions are increasingly accurate, there's lots of dopamine and lots of emotional upside surprises. And so it not only is fast, it feels fast, and it is just, this is right where I'm supposed to be. And so the two phases there are accelerator, not surprisingly, and according to self-determination theory, although I renamed it, I call it CAR, fast CAR, competence, autonomy, relatedness. You're having all those experiences. And then as you move on that curve, you go from accelerator to metamorph, where what you're doing becomes who you are your metamorphosis is almost complete, and then you tip into mastery. And mastery is the top of the mountain. The model, predictive model, you've figured it out. There are no more bugs. You've got it. But that also means there's not very much dopamine. So launch point, dopamine drops. Sweet spot, it's up a lot here. It's like, eh, a little bit. There's not much new to see here. Seen it all. Been there, done that. So you're bored. You need a challenge. And because of that, you can quickly self-sabotage. That plateau can become a precipice. And growth is just slow. And so if you, over time, are going to become a peak performer, it's not just staying in the sweet spot. It's actually your ability to navigate the slow, the fast, and the slow to complete that growth cycle. So that's the mental model. And once you have that in your head, It helps you understand why it's so hard to start. It helps you understand why once you do start, it's easy because the momentum takes over. And it also helps you understand why you can be very, very good at something and no longer keep doing it. Mm -hmm. And if you trace out your life, you can actually see your life is a series of S-curves. I love that. I love the self-diagnosis aspect of that, by the way, of being able to look over your shoulder and say, okay, if I really sort of parse pull things apart, I can get a feel for what this was like. And I hadn't actually thought of it so concretely about me leaving the big check printer until you asked. And then it was like, oh my gosh, of course, it was so clear. I knew instantly after reading Clayton's book, I didn't want to be disrupted in that way. I didn't want to be in the company. I wanted to turn to Shelley Archambault. You spend a fair amount of time talking about her story as a great example of how she rose to peaks and then... <laughs> had to find another yeah. peak to climb or there, or she got to a peak mm-hmm. and saw that the mountain range was a lot longer than she thought it was going to be. And I, I bring her up in part because she was a wonderful guest on Behavioral Grooves already. But can you talk about this this idea that that maybe you you, you get into that sweet spot and you, you feel like you're getting to mastery and then you realize, holy cow, there's another curve ahead of me. Yeah. And I actually just realized I skipped two phases at mastery. There's both the anchor and there's mountaineer. And anchor is that place where you need to pause. You need to celebrate like I did this because if you focus on what you do well, you get more of it, as you know, because you're a behavioral scientist. And then there's the mountaineer phase. And that's where we talk about Shelly. And so, um, so she's very interesting. Part of what I find so fascinating about her is that she, unlike most other humans, had a pretty clear sense of who and what she wanted to do from a very young age. I mean, her sense of self and what she wanted is astonishing. And I, I think even more astonishing because she is a female and she's a woman of color. Like, it just makes it that much more impressive. And so she 
in high school decided, I'm going to be a CEO. I'm going to do that. And then she goes. Well, doesn't everybody? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Most people still want to be a professional athlete or a rock star in high school. (laughs) She wanted to be a CEO. So she goes to school. She knows what she wants to do. And and you might want to fill in this with me, but I'll talk you through how I'm thinking about it. She goes to work for IBM and she realizes, okay, well, I want to be a CEO. So if I'm going to become a CEO, oh, I need to do sales because most of the people that become the CEOs are in sales. And so she goes and jumps on the sales S-curve. And then she says, oh, okay, so I've moved up that S-curve. Now, oh, I just realized that people who become the CEO also have an international assignment. So I guess I better go get an international assignment. Then she goes and gets an international assignment, but then she has a boss who says to her, okay, well, this is going to be a little bit hard for you because number one, they typically, I think if I recall correctly, they like men and you're not a man. Number two, they like- Because she was going to Japan. She was going to Japan. Thank you for correcting it. They like men. They like people who are white and they like people who are smart. You only have one of those going for you. You better figure out how to leverage it. But she did. She became in charge of like major enterprise sales in Asia. She comes back. She's like, okay, I'm getting ready to be a CEO. And then she gets passed over. She's like, okay, I guess I'm not going to be a CEO here. She goes and becomes a CEO at Blockbuster. And this is about when they were going to get disrupted. She realizes, oh, they really are going to get disrupted. She's like, um, I guess I'm not going to make the CEO here. So she leaves. She goes back to base camp, retrenches a little bit and takes a CMO assignment a couple of places. And now here comes the part of the story that I perhaps love best. She's like, okay, early 2000s, I am ready to be a CEO. Well, anybody who's older than 20 knows <laughs> that in the early 2000s, there was this thing called the dot-com bust. Yeah. Trillions of dollars of value evaporate. And any CEO, well, first of all, Silicon Valley is littered with CEOs. So any VC firm who needs a CEO can find plenty that have lots of experience and Shelly's never been a CEO. So what she does, something very, very disruptive, she says, let me find a venture firm that I want to work for, and let me find a company within those venture firms that is about to go bankrupt. Yeah. And then she says, I'll take that one, please. They're like, sure, why not? It's going to go bankrupt anyway. (laughs) She gets in there. She takes not one bankrupt company. She then merges it with another almost bankrupt company. She turns them both around. 13 years later, they've been profitable. It's a risk analytics company. Major, major victory. And now she sits on the board of boards of Nordstrom and Verizon. So to your question is, for her, she kept on going up an S-curve thinking, this is the summit or this is going to get me to the summit. When she realized it didn't, she just jumped to a new S-curve. But for many times, it was a summit, not the summit. But it was always her intention to reach the summit, the CEO summit. And she did eventually get there, but there were lots and lots of mountains in between. So that's how I tell the story. But I would love to hear how you all would tell the story, what your takeaways were from that. No, no, because that's not why you're here. <laughs> here to tell our stories. Well, let's compare uh, notes. Well, I, I mean, we saw very much the same thing, and mm-hmm. and and she did a great job in her book. We even called the episode uh, "Flying Like an Eagle" because she's oh. a big fan of uh, Steve Miller and, oh. and and the song "Fly Like an Eagle" because that's her. Yeah. Like, so. Yeah. One of the things. One of the things that we huh. talked with with Shelley about, and I think we talked with a lot of our 
our guests about is just this mindset. And she had she had a definitely very positive mm. uh, go get them mindset from the beginning. And I know you talk a lot about mindset in in, in the book as well. So I think part of our conversation with her was really trying to unpack, you know, how, how do you as a young black woman in almost all white high school, mm-hmm. A, formulate this idea that I want to be a CEO and then go through your life in such a manner as to to do that. That takes a lot. There's a lot of, as you were talking about the weather patterns, right? There's a lot yeah. of weather that is pushing against her, right? right. She's, she's not getting a tailwind helping her. She's getting yeah. this wind in her face that's pushing right. her back. Now, in her case, she did have her parents that I think were very supportive of her. Yeah. And everything you and, said. And her husband and everybody else that she right. worked with and in this whole so area. Goes back so back to Astrid's thing. But, and I think the thing that about her that you know you're on to something or a mindset that is something that you want to emulate more when I know I had the experience of reading her book and this is something that I think we're all aspiring to is you'll read her book and you go like how did she do that like how did she think about life that way and that's when you know to yourself you think oh I've got some self-limiting beliefs I need to work on (laughs) for me I'm actually yeah I'm actually glad you said that because that if I recall correctly uh in my brain my memory is like Swiss cheese mostly but this idea of how did you think that way? Like, how mm-hmm. do you come to not just be so confident and so determined and so goal-oriented, but how do you start to think that way and to put these things together? Like the counselor discussion that she has in, in high school where the counselor's like, well, you just want to lead. Like, you know, and she's like, yeah, you know, I, I like leading the chess club. I like leading the brownies. Right. I, I just like leading. He's like, well, you should be a CEO. And she's like, that's it. Like, how... I, I, that still just kind of blows my mind, actually. Yeah, I, yeah, I love it. And I think that that for me is I, I'm continually thinking about, and part of the reason why, and we're probably still digressing, but I think it's a, it's an interesting conversation, is that, you know, here my whole life, and, and I think you could argue that I've been reasonably successful, and I look at, um, but I remember coming across Bob Proctor's work. So I'm talking about disruption. I'm talking about growth. And, and I come across his work, and I think, holy cow, like I, I still have some disrupting I need to do. And that disrupting is my mindset. Mm-hmm. Because yes, it is true that there are, there are things that I have not gotten in my life because I'm a woman, because of my, my faith tradition. But there's a whole lot more that I have not gotten because of here, because I didn't <laughs> think I could get it. And that's what I loved about Shelly is I was like, wow, she believes that she can get it. She gets it. That's awesome. Uh, what's your next wave? What's your next mountain? <laughs> um, my next mountain right now is we, as you have read the book, you see that we talk about this S-curve insight tool. And mm-hmm. so we have this, this technology that that's a little bit overblown. We have a tool that is online. So it's a tech-enabled talent development company that allows you to see where am I in my growth? It allows you then as a team leader to see where is my team in their growth because you can then use it for talent development. You can use this to configure your team, to optimize them for growth. And so where am I is to not only take these ideas, but how do we build and scale Mm. a company around that? And how does one scale a company? So that's that's the S-curve that I'm on right now. Sounds like you're in launch. (laughs) 
<laughs> totally. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's the spot where you need to be at this point, right? Yeah, so absolutely. that's that's exactly it. So mm-hmm. that's great. You're you're yeah. finding things out. Well, and I need to walk my talk. I can't yeah. I can't talk about these things if I'm not jumping to my own S curves. Otherwise, it back to the authentic thing of clay. Yeah. Like no. if you talk about it, you need to do it. Okay. I'm going to take a tangent here. So you have a very, besides this fantastic book, books actually in, in the past, or, you know, multiple, you have a successful podcast, Disrupt Yourself. And on that podcast, you have a lot of behavioral scientists, but also guests from a variety of different, you know, you, uh-huh. you had Sasha uh, Pachulia, you know, uh-huh. NBA, yeah. former NBA basketball player, as well as, you know, Katie Milkman, Adam Grant, BJ Fogg, uh, you know, James Clear, a whole bunch of- uh, Harold O'Neill. Yeah, uh-huh. Scott Barry Kaufman, you know, uh-huh. fantastic uh-huh. people. All right. And so this is like trying to maybe pick a favorite child, but are there any conversations with any of your guests that really stick out with you that just changed the way that you think about the world that just really had an impact that you go, gosh, that if I look back on however many that you've done, mm. this was the the episode, this was the person and there, they just rocked my, my whole- It changed how I see the world. It's a great question. So I have a few. Should I give you a few for different give, reasons? Give us a few. Yeah. I mean, it's it's hard, yeah. right? It's, you well, can't pick your favorite and child. I, and you know, I, so. I think you're going to be surprised why I say what I say. So there have been a few that have been on. I, I'm going to have recency bias, so forgive um, me. But okay. I think about, I had Jacqueline Novogratz on not too long ago. And I wouldn't say that she changed my world, but in that moment... It was just a very special moment. I just, Mm. I felt something deeply. I appreciated who she is and her humanity. And I think that when a conversation is done well, there, there is that moment of just deep connection with another person. And so that one stands out for me. Another one that stands out for me. Oh, I got to give you a couple. Sorry, you got me started. (laughs) (laughs) Another one that stands out for me Partly because it makes, I really learned an important lesson was the Simon Sinek podcast. Mm. And here's why. Because I was so, I was so nervous to have him on the podcast. I didn't know him. I mean, he's like a superstar and I just, and it wasn't visual. It was just all audio. So you can't get the, the visual cues. And, and it wasn't a great interview. Now that might be partly his fault, but it was definitely partly my fault. And I tried to understand what happened after that. And you might listen to it and think it's absolutely fine. But the experience that I had was that it wasn't great. And I wondered why afterwards. And I realized that it was because I had objectified him. And I'll say what I mean. We oftentimes talk about treating people as objects. um, And we typically think of it in terms of someone that we perceive as being lower in social standing than we are. But in that moment, I perceived him as being higher in social standing. And because I perceived him as being higher, I objectified him. Mm -hmm. So I couldn't have a conversation with him. And I actually talked about this in the outro because it was such a, it was such an important lesson for me. So that was a really important learning for me. And then two more I'll mention. Um, I had a Livingston Taylor on the podcast, I don't know, about a year and a half ago. And he's the younger brother of James Taylor. And Oh, it makes me cry. He got on the podcast and he sang Getting to Know You. And many of you won't know this song. It's a really old Rodgers and Hammerstein song. 
But just to hear him sing that song just live and spontaneously, it was just a very, very, very sweet moment. And then the last one that I'll mention was I had Sunil Gupta on. And he wrote a book called Backable. And that one was really powerful for me because prior to that, I'd been having a conversation about our technology tool. And we were talking about it with a prospective client. And and I was being kind of hesitant. I was pulling my punches. And after we got off the phone, my business partner said to me, do you not believe in this? I was like, no, I do. And I realized when I listened to Sunil, he talks about backable. He basically says, if you don't believe it, nobody else will. And he tells this wonderful story about his mother and how she had so much conviction. And so that really changed. That was really influential for me as well, because I realized I have to not only believe in what I'm doing, but I have to be willing to be vulnerable enough, because that's what it Mm. is, to say, I believe in this. And you may not, but it doesn't matter. I believe in it. So those are those are some ones that um, I'm thinking about um, off the top of my head that were meaningful. Wow. I almost just want to just like let this 60-second pause just to resonate on thinking about Livingston Taylor singing <laughs> Getting to Know You from The King and I. I mean, it's a song that my mother sang to me when I was growing up. It's like Aww. so emotional, you know, that – and Liv Taylor is – he's pretty fantastic. <gasps> he's so brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Martha's Vineyard dude, you know, hangs out there, does these lovely – church concerts for small groups of people. Fantastic mm-hmm. guy. Mm-hmm. Which might be a good segue into talking about music. Let's Kurt. do it. Let's do it. <laughs> I was hoping and, and waiting. It was like laying you out there for you, there. Tim. It was a slow pitch that if you weren't going to swing, I was going to have to swing for you. <laughs> Whitney, I don't know where to start because I feel like we could have a whole conversation just about music mm. because you're a music major. You actually have a background in music. You Talk to a lot of musicians, fantastic musicians. You use musicians in the uh, for the podcast for Disrupt mm-hmm. Yourself. Uh, of course, you you even brought musicians into your book. I don't know where to start. How, how about this? What's on your playlist? Like, what are you mm. listening to these days? And has it changed through the pandemic? That's a great question. Yes, my playlist has changed, um, but I'm going to answer that question a little bit differently than you might expect. Of because I don't oftentimes listen to music when I'm working because it's too distra- I get too interested and it's distracting, except for smooth jazz. That I can listen to. Like Kenny G smooth jazz, like bad jazz. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because it's like it there's just enough that it it keeps me occupied, but it doesn't distract me. But because there's of, nothing there, by the there's, way. Yeah, there's not a lot there. <laughs> oh, poor Kenny G. I hope Kenny G's not listening. So so what happened during the pandemic and to your question about music is I studied music in college, but for many, many years, I did not do any music. I set it aside. And I think in retrospect, that was partly because in many ways, it kind of become my mother's dream, my parents' dream, and it wasn't mine. And so when I graduated, part of my grand individuation was I'm finished with music. And so I kind of put it aside for many years, other than accompanying people at church on occasion, I didn't really play. What was your instrument, by the piano. way? I play piano. piano. At mm-hmm. a conservatory? I went to Brigham Young University, but I did get a, a degree in music and did a, yeah. did a senior recital. Part of it's too, as I discovered jazz a little bit too late, but here's, here's what's on my playlist. So about when the pandemic hit, I thought, I'm going to start playing piano again. And so mm. I would start like watching YouTube videos and there's this one YouTuber that I, Amy Nolte, who's a jazz pianist and she sings and 
like learning from her really good. She breaks it down like, here's how you do rhythm changes. And then she shows you how to do it. That's like the song I Got Rhythm for those of you who don't know. So one of the things that I did is I've started to play the piano again, but play it like I not I'm going to practice for two hours a day and learn this, you know, Bach Bach fugue, I'm just going to learn whatever I feel like learning today. I'm going to go on YouTube and find the bass line for Isn't She Lovely and play along with the bass player because that'll be fun. Like just discovering it. But about nine months ago, I had someone say to me, you need to work on your pronunciation on your podcast. I'm like, okay. It's not like it was terrible, but you need to just work on it. I was like, okay, I'll do it. So I get this vocal coach. Well, this vocal coach happens to cross train for singing. (laughs) so you know where this is going Mm -hmm. so now you're gonna make me cry for the second time today is as we start doing that i'm having this whole experience of finding my voice metaphysically actually and the beautiful piece of this is that i have a perfectly pleasant voice it is not anything magical to anybody but it's magical to me because it's my voice. And so what's on my playlist are very simple songs like Nature Boy by Nat King Cole and All the Things You Are, um, which is another classic, and just learning how to sing and sometimes figuring out how to play a bass line on the piano. So I'm rediscovering music. As a consequence of it, I'm finding myself in a different way. It's pretty awesome. So that's an S-curve. Yeah. Whitney, welcome back. <laughs> Thank you. Wow. Well, Whitney, to, to, to a degree, you, you joked about this earlier, but to, to a degree, you are finding your groove. You're finding that part of you know that life, that rhythm of your life that mm-hmm. allows you to live a more full, vibrant, exploring opportunities. So. Isn't it cool when that happens? So one of my anthems for all of this is, did either of you see the movie Sing? Yes. Where Tori Kelly is singing, Don't You Worry About a Thing? Best scene ever. It's the pig, the elephant. Yeah. It's the the best scene ever. So that would be on my playlist is Don't You Worry About a Thing by Stevie Wonder. Oh my gosh. Well, and he can sing that after dinner with you when you you have that conversation. And Livingston Taylor, oh, by the way, plus Diana Krall. That would be a fantastic combination, actually, that just bringing those three together could be really interesting. Honestly, we, I'm pretty sure I'm speaking for us. I'm just going to say this, but I'm definitely speaking for myself, Whitney, when I say this has been such an enjoyable time and we could go for another hour without a blink on all these different levels. But we want to thank you very, very much for being such a wonderful guest on Behavioral Grooves today. Oh, thank you, Tim and Kurt. It's been, wow, it's just been an absolute delight. Welcome to our grooving session where Tim and I groove on what we learned from our discussion with Whitney, have a free-flowing conversation, and talk about whatever else comes into our s- brains. That was an S. That's the S curve. Did you get that? Uh, that was That's the sound an S makes, at least, you know, for me. So, yeah. I got that. Yeah. <laughs> it worked. It, it totally worked for me. So, okay. So Kurt, we, uh, Kurt, we had a wonderful discussion with Whitney. What, what strikes you? What, what, what are the things that you think are 
most important to kind of reiterate and process for our, our listeners here? You're going really past that thing really quickly. Are you not really liking it? Is just that one of the things? Is there that much depth in? Probably not. <laughs> All right. Okay. So, so Whitney. So, I mean, obviously, the S curve is, is cool and big, but I think the piece that struck me was this idea that management theory doesn't have to be obscure. That by personalizing mm. that theory, it becomes visceral and it can be more easily operationalized. That, to me, is just this insight that, yeah, I should know this. We should all know this. But yeah. too often, I think we we think of things more cognitively and here's what this does for the business and all those things. So I couldn't agree more. It speaks to the fact that I think that she's addressing how disconnected senior leaders can be from sort of the general population of the employees. Right. Oh, and we have never seen that, have we, Tim? Yeah. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Oh my God. I mean, the number of, of senior leaders we've interviewed who act like they really know what's going on, but they actually have no clue as to what's happening on an individual employee level. When, when you get down and you talk to the employees and then you talk to senior leader executives and you do this gap analysis between not just the content, not just here are the things that we're focused on. Here's our the programs that we have in place. Here's our vision. Here's our mission. Yeah. But you get into the quality of work, the tone that people are saying and talking about things, the way that people are thinking about their future and what is important to them, man, there is often a disconnect. And it's yeah. big and it's not talked about. And that, I think, is this idea of how do you get down to that level where you as a leader, because it's hard. And I get this. I'm not, I'm not trying to lay blame at the right. leader's foot. No, it, the, the job is, it's a difficult job. It is. It, you are surrounded. You have different decisions that you're making. You have different information that you know that others don't. And your world is being driven by outward elements that are looking at Wall Street. You're looking at you know investors. Yeah. You're looking at the marketplace. You're looking at all these different pieces that are just minor or smaller pieces to those people on the on the ground level often. And yet you have to be able to, you know, kind of migrate between both. Agreed. And that's uh, uncommon. And I, I realized that that wasn't necessarily the, the heart of exactly what uh, Whitney was, a, was alluding to when she talked about how management theories don't need to be so obscure. But I think that that's really an important takeaway. I really, I really like that you, you've mentioned that, Kurt. I also like, let, let's talk about the S-curve. Because the there's a couple curve. Is that like the letting air out of your bicycle tires? No, I thought it was like a snake. Oh. <laughs> and it formed a, an S. There's a there's a visual thing, people. You know, you think about this. There you go. Yes. All right. Sorry. Think about the the asp that that killed Cleopatra, maybe. That's- <laughs> For a visual, I really like that it's she built a, a model that is very accessible. Launch sweet spot mastery. Oh God, that's uh, great. Yep, right. It, it it totally makes sense. The thing that I wanted to say about launch is that I really like the idea that that she talks about the predictions with low accuracy. That in launch we're excited and enthusiastic, but we're not very accurate at that point in time right? We don't know what we don't know. And so we're going to make predictions during that launch phase that are just not going to be very accurate. And that's okay. Actually, that's a that's a learning piece. If you look at 
um, the research around re reward prediction error. This idea that dopamine gets released when uh, dopamine gets released when we predict our thing and we have the right reward and different things, it gets released right. at a certain level. It right. gets released higher if our reward is better than what we had expected it to be. So in other words, yeah. we had an error in our prediction, but the error is on the positive side. It's like, oh my gosh, I thought this this product would earn $10,000. This product earned $100,000. Well, that is a huge upside of that. Right. And so your dopamine release is exaggerated. Significantly bigger. Yeah, yeah. which yeah. is a positive learning piece because that feels good. So you want to repeat that. So what did I do in order to get that? Again, if we think about dopamine as the neuromodulator, that isn't necessarily the, the joy thing from the end. It has that component in it, but it is more of the, the wanting you know, kind of neuromodulator that I want this because that's driving my behavior towards this. But on the converse, if you're expecting a certain reward and you don't get that reward, again, that yeah. reward expectancy is is wrong, but it's in the negative piece. So the dopamine goes below your baseline and that is negative for us. And so we feel bad about that. So it's a learning piece. And because we don't want to yeah. repeat that, we don't want to repeat that feeling. We look back, what did we do? What did we expect? And either change our behavior or we change the expectations around that. And thus it won't be motivating to drive us to do what we want to do. And that's how you go through this launch phase where you're constantly exploring and you're learning from that. And I love the idea that she brings in dopamine into this into this whole theory piece. And all of that can be taxing, especially the, the negative learnings, the negative experiences, those prediction errors are really taxing on us. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I think that we undervalue how how much that can slow us down and how challenging it can be. And it, it's going to cause us to have some kind of identity shift. Mm -hmm. It's going to, cognitive dissonance won't last for long. You know, we're, <laughs> we're going to be forced into kind of having to either adapt to the world or or, or just having to reimagining the way things really are and, and how we're going to get there. And if we don't change that, then that taxing part that you talked about it becomes even more taxing because you do have that. Oh, right. yeah. And so that's right. where that leads to. And it leads to change and behavior change and it leads to learning. And so that piece, I think, is really fascinating as we think about that. And then getting into that sweet spot, this idea where, as she says, you more predictions, but with higher accuracy. So you're starting yeah. to go, oh, yeah. I see what works. This is this is what is driving me. This is what is driving the organization. And again, as I mentioned, you still get dopamine when you reward, when the reward meets the expectation. But hopefully on this too, is that you have exceeding your expectations more and more, and you're getting this progress principle, the stuff that, you know, Teresa Amiable talks about, right? The idea that you are moving forward and making progress on that. Yeah. And, and that forward motion, that acknowledging and being aware of that progress is motivational to us. It, it helps us feel good. It gives us a little more stick-to-itiveness yep. and, uh, and, and moves us down the road. There's still the dopamine release, right? Which is all the pieces yeah. that you just talked about. So you're getting that and you're getting less of the downside of it, hopefully. So Right, which is continues learning in a much more positive way, reinforcing this whole progress thing. What, what did you think of Carr, her, her rewriting the self-determination theory? Uh, well, you know, I, I like it. I think it's actually, it, it's a better moniker, right? Carr, you can remember it, competence, autonomy, relatedness. You know, it varies a little bit from uh, the original DC and Ryan of the 
what was that? It's autonomy, relatedness, and uh, competency. Mastery. No, mastery. Mastery. You're right. Yeah. So there you You know, I, I like it. it. I think it's it's a neat little twist on it. So yeah, what about you? Yeah, I, I think it's a great way of, again, remembering it because car, the mnemonic is much uh, easier to uh, to remember. It's a good cognitive aid. And if we're going to think about uh, any any kind of self-determination, which she is really big on, you know, agency is a, a really big part of her story, then, uh, and if that's a big part of your story, car is a great way of, of remembering it. So yeah, yeah I, I, I'm absolutely all in favor of it. What else? What else would you like to... Well, to, let's to let's talk on. about her last piece, which is this mastery. Oh yeah, part, mastery. Right? Yeah, right? right. Which is, and I liked how she talked about this because this is the spot where we we think. Oh, we talked about this before the show started, right? This idea that mastery often is this concept that I think about, and I think that you think about as well. Where all right, I've reached the pinnacle. I'm done. I mastered mm-hmm. this, and the idea that she brings up that I find really fascinating is that, you know, Whitney's going, no, this is the time to get bored and to start over. And this is where self-sabotage can start to happen. So this is an indication for people not to say I've reached the pinnacle, but hey, there's a new peak to climb, right? So, yeah. Which of course got, was so beautifully highlighted in her stories about Shelley Archambault or, mm-hmm. you know, a, a past guest about how she reaches a peak. And when she's at that peak, she sees that there's other mountains to climb. Yeah. And that's a wonderful visual image. When I think about scholarship that, that you, you read a paper and you go, wow, this really opened up my eyes to some really new ideas. And then you start looking at the references and it's like, oh, I've, I haven't read that paper. I haven't read that paper. Or mastery, when I think about my love for music, when I was a kid with discs, with, you know, vinyl discs, listening to music on on a vinyl disc, the album cover would oftentimes list who played on the record and who was a producer and who was an engineer. And there was a, sort of a sense of, well, I've really enjoyed this experience. What else do some of these other players bring to bear? Yeah. Could I enjoy something else that this engineer also, you know, engineered in, in uh, with another group or another artist or uh, the producer did a particularly nice job. You know, this this is mastery is the time to to keep moving. Actually, yeah. did did anybody ever tell you that you're kind of nerdy? <laughs> well, th- I mean, I'm sorry, I don't know how many people look at an album and go, "Ooh, this engineer. What else? What other work did this engineer do that I can go and listen to?" I can see like the bass player. I can see like the guest musicians they have on. Maybe even the producer, <laughs> the engineer. Oh my! Uh, anyway, all right. Why not? Uh, there you go. So why not? Because you might find that the engineer is integral to this, and and that's this yes. piece. This is the interesting piece that we didn't talk about this, but this constant inquisitiveness that I think what really great leaders have is this idea that they don't settle. So they reach that top. They reach that mountain peak. This is the Shelley component. This is the idea that, hey, it's there's always another peak. There's always something more I can learn. It might not be a bigger peak. It might be a peak that's somewhere. It might even be a lower peak. But it's a new peak, and I have to go right. and explore it. I have to find it. I have to I have to think about it. So, agreed. I couldn't agree more. It's important, and I'm so glad that that Shelley shared her thoughts with us. And yeah, Whitney too. So yeah, 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 definitely. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I think that wraps this up. Is 
as I'm getting way too loopy here. So that's another episode of Behavior Grooves, Tim. But I wanted to say our conversation with Whitney was actually pretty cool. I mean, yeah. I wasn't sure what to expect in the conversation with her, but hmm. I thought yeah. it really it, it outdid my expectations. So that was cool. Her S-curve model connected with me because she took that organizational model and she personalized it. She brought it down to make it accessible, not just to me, but hopefully for lots of people. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I, I really liked the way that she sort of rendered this whole story in very sweet and discreet packages, right? That launch sweet spot mastery are really accessible and graspable and something that uh, everybody can can take home and, and use. And this idea that, hey, you know, agency, self-determination, intrinsic motivation, those are really important. And she kind of highlights that. So, yeah. Well, she yeah, she figured out a great way to share her worldview and her observations, right? I mean, she's She's a talented writer as well. So it, it, was, it was really, really fun getting to talk to her. And remember that um, if you want a free copy of her book, write a little yeah. tweet to us about why you want it and just hashtag behavior groove without the E, right? I also, if you're going to do that, you might as well just take a moment to check out our monthly newsletter, The Groovy yes. Snack, filled yes. with lots of ideas on how to bring behavioral science into your life so that you can have a better life. Yeah, you can sign up for that newsletter. Uh, and it is just monthly, by the way, at behavioralgrooves.com. So it's just, we think that you shouldn't miss out on any. So you should sign up right now. Well, yeah. And right after you write the little behavioral groove without an E tweet about why you want, you know, Whitney's book. I think that's great. There you go. <laughs> exactly. And lastly, we hope that you take a little bit of the S-curve with you and consider where you're at on some of your own personal journeys. Are you just launching? Are you in the need of some dopamine? Do you need to, you know, re-examine those expectations and reward expectations and learn from your mistakes? Are you in the sweet spot where your things are going good and you're feeling great about it? Or, or have you hit the mastery stage and you're starting to get bored and you need to find that new challenge? You need to be inquisitive. So wherever you are, that I think is, is really important. So figure out where you are on that journey. Yeah. Yeah, and wherever you are on that S-curve, we hope that this week you go out and you find your groove. <laughs>